We have been for the last two weeks and then today a three-week series, kind of a mini-series on the nature and task of the local church, what I would define as Paul's, Paul's essentials, church essentials. This is what the church is, is and is to be about. The nature, what a local church, not just a church university, but universally, but a local church. What are we called to be? What has God made us to be? And what are we to be doing? How shall we, in Paul's words, conduct ourselves? Now that leads me to, I want to do a reading of Scripture here in a minute. I actually forgot to do something that I intended to do when we were reading Scripture earlier, and that was to have everybody stand up. Now hold on just a minute. You'll get to do that, but bear with me. Sometimes, I'm getting older. We've, we've kind of, along the way, we've said, you know, it would be good to stand when we read God's Word. And yet, Bob doesn't always remember if I could just confess that to you this morning. Sometimes I'll get in the midst of, I'm anxious to read what's there. And I forget the whole, hey, let's stand part. So bear with me if that happens. Don't judge me if that happens. There is no New Testament passage that I know of, no Old Testament passage that I know of that tells us we must stand for the reading of God's Word. However, there's a, a time in Scripture where after a ignoring of God's word under Nehemiah and Ezra, they stood to hear the word. And there's something about how we worship, not only with our minds, but with our bodies. When we bow in prayer, when we stand in respect for God's words, there's something valuable about that. Posture does matter. And so with that, uh, and also let me explain, we're going to read this morning, but we're not going to read the ESV, the English Standard Version that we normally read from, NIV or New American Standard, I've borrowed a bit from those three in the PBV, which is the Pastor Bob version. So it's my free translation from the Greek, but borrowing the wisdom, this translation got that part right. This translation got this part right. So we're going to assemble those together. And I've given you that in your notes that are in the bulletin, and we'll have it on the screen while I read. So let's stand for God's Word. In 1 Timothy 3, beginning of verse 14, verses 14 and 15, Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things, this letter, 1 Timothy, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to live their lives in the family household of God, which is the called out assembly of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth. Father, we do ask you to open up your word to us now. Lord, these are ancient words. They have been handed down through time from those who have gone before us till today, from your apostles and prophets, now into our hands to hand off as well to another generation. So Lord, as we hear from your word this morning, Lord, speak to our hearts that we would indeed be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Take your seats. We're focusing on verse 15 out of that section. 
And in verse 15, there are three phrases that we're spending time in. Pastor Ryan remarked last week that this is probably the shortest text he'd ever had for a message. Three words. The household of God. Well, four words. The household of God. And um, the, each of these three phrases tells us something in particular about what the church is and then what the church should do, either by implication or expressly. And Paul says that. These three phrases emphasize that the church is an extended family household. We are the household or family of God. Now, that refers to the Greco-Roman estate and it refers to the, the, the patriarch and his, his immediate family. It may refer to his adult sons and even daughters and their families that remain part of that, that, that estate, which is a working industry estate, whether it's agriculture or something else, and they're in the family enterprise and business together. And there are others not born into that family lineage that are added to the family, that become part of the family, and it is their responsibility to uphold the family honor and to carry, about, carry out the family business. Each one participates in the ways that we can be a good time to point out the serving opportunities that are in the bulletin. Be sure and check those before you leave. We don't all do the same things, but each of us have a part, have a responsibility within the family. Somebody makes the dinner, somebody else does the dishes, etc. We are also the called out assembly of the true and living God. That we are called out of the whole, but not unto ourselves to isolate for our own sakes. We are called out to God to be for God to the world. That's actually an emphasis that we'll bring out in that spiritual life class that we'll be starting tonight. That, that spiritual, our spiritual life is life with God for the world. Even as Jesus came and lived the life of God among us and for us, so also we, called in his name, carry out that same mandate that we are called out in assembly of the true and living God as God is unique and different. We're to be unique and different for the benefit, not only of ourselves, but for the benefit of people around us. And the church is, the third phrase, a pillar and support of the truth. Some, some versions use a different word for support. Some versions say the pillar and support of the, of the truth. But any local church, and we are talking about a particular local church here, the one in Ephesus where Timothy was, where Paul would come to. He's talking about a specific group of people that he intends to visit. No single church is the pillar and the support of the truth. The article is certainly not in the original Greek. So just for clarity, that's why I emphasize that point. Each church has a role to do here, though. Each church is to be a pillar and a support. And we'll be unpacking those two terms, but let me give you the end of it right up front. The, the responsibility given is that we are to, the way that we conduct ourselves is to be both proclaiming and preserving. I thought of the old line that used to be on the side door of police cars, to preserve and to protect. Well, we are to preserve and to proclaim, to make known, to tell to others and I would suggest to show and tell to others. 
the unchanging truth of God's word. So let me get into that, especially the whole show and tell thing. Where do I get that? What does it mean to be a pillar and support of the truth? Well, I think there might be under this, although I'm not going to emphasize this aspect of it, there might be related to this a reference back to the true and living God as compared to the main goddess of Ephesus, where Timothy is. You, you remember the, the big deal in the theater um, around Paul, the riot that breaks out in the book of Acts where they're, where they're all shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That there were various idols, there were various temples in the city of Ephesus. It was a large city, a very prosperous city, but the main focus of the city was, Ephesus, was, was Artemis, also known in, 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 in Roman circles as Diana. Now, Artemis was the god of Ephesus. They believed that her image fell from heaven to Ephesus, that they were made the guardians of the image of Artemis. And now, the, the, the temple of Artemis was one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world. It's listed in the list. In fact, nothing greater than this except Mount Olympus itself. It was roughly 450 feet, I want to say by about 175 or so. It was, the, the, the temple was this very large base that raised it up. And then there was a whole series. It didn't have solid walls except maybe in the innermost section. But the exterior was all these layers of rows of columns, 127 columns, each of them 60 feet tall. It was huge. It was massive. It made a statement. So we're talking about pillars or columns, and we're talking about a, a large immovable base that lifts up those columns. Well, that might evoke something of Artemis' temple as well, that which many of the Christians in the city of Ephesus had been called out, out from, called out to God. But there's another aspect to this whole term, pillar. It's not a word column, it's a word pillar, stulos. And it could be an architectural. It could be we're talking about a foundation and we're talking about a pillar that holds up a roof of a building. That could be, but there's a whole other angle on this that I want to talk about this morning. You've seen something like this if you've ever been out to Astoria and you've seen the Astoria column. The Astoria Column sits on a hill, and it's a great viewpoint out there, but both uh, looking out of the mouth of Columbia and also there's another river that's coming in, and uh, it's a great high point. But there's this column. It sits on a large base, and the column itself has this spiral images going around the column, going all the way up to the top, and it tells a story. In fact, it tells the story of the history of Oregon from the arrival of Lewis and Clark. Now, I know that's not the whole history, but... That's, that's what they were interested in. So it tells the story from Lewis and Clark all the way to Oregon becoming a statehood, a, a state. They had, to, they had to end it sometime. And so the column isn't just a nice pillar that marks a spot. You remember the purpose of the column and what it's to do. It tells the story of Oregon because that's the story that marks the column. Now, we had the opportunity a year ago just after Easter, when we were on our way to go and visit our daughter and her family in Zimbabwe, we, we, we had the opportunity to have a stopover for a couple of days in Rome. 
And while we were in Rome, there was one thing I wanted to see. You're thinking of the Colosseum, thinking of the Roman, Roman, the Roman Forum from the first century. Yes, I'm, a, I'm an archaeological geek to a certain extent, so I'm fascinated by all this stuff. But there was one thing I wanted to see, and we hadn't seen it, and we hadn't seen it. And we're, we're walking through the streets, and we come around a corner, and there it is. Trajan's Column. Now, that's not necessarily on, on your must-see list. You probably want to see the Spanish Steps. You want to see the Trevi Fountain. You might want to go to the Vatican or St. Peter's Basilica. There's lots of stuff to see in Rome. I wanted to see Trajan's Column because I've been talking about it for 20 years. I say, why? Well, Trajan's Column has something to tell us. In fact, I, I'm so interested in this, I gave you a picture of it on the front of your bulletin. And the, the picture of Trajan Column, I think, explains the image that Paul is using here when he talks about a local church as a pillar and support of the truth. That it's a, it's a hundred-foot pillar. It stands on a very large base that has serves two purposes. It's a large, immovable base, and that was common with pillars like this. Often a proclamational pillar, a pillar that's meant to tell a story. It's not just a pillar that stands there. It's all polished and gleaming, an architectural pillar. And you've seen a lot of pillars like that. They're smooth. Maybe they're standing up still. Maybe they're laying over. Maybe they have carved vertical lines in them, but they, there's nothing unique about the, that pillar that tells a story. There might be some words at the very top on the capital or down at the base, but the pillar itself, there's nothing. But a proclamational pillar is different. A proclamational pillar is intended to tell a story. Now, oftentimes, they would be in the midst of a temple or a great hall called the Basilica in the first century, and they would be sitting there in the midst of other stuff that you would also see. Maybe they would be five, six, ten feet tall, and they might be lifted up on a large marble base that would lift it up so if there's a crowd gathered around, everybody from further back can still see the pillar. So the job of the base, the support, is to hold up the pillar so that it can be seen. Now Trajan's column is quite a massive example of this. You have the base down at the bottom. It doesn't tell a story. It stands there and holds the pillar. The pillar tells the story. The, 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 the pillar, the column, has this engraving all the way around it. It tells the story of the Dacian Wars. Now, how many of you have heard of, the, of Trajan's victories in the Dacian Wars? A few of you. How many of you care about Trajan's victories in the Dacian Wars? Just a few of you. Yeah, that's not really the point. However, the, the only reason I know about it is that's, that's what marks Trajan's column. And so through time, in fact, what, one of the things the Catholic Church did later on in history, sometime in the medieval era, they, 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 there was at the very top, there was a statue of Trajan. So the base holds it up, the pillar tells the story of Trajan, and way up at the top is the statue of Trajan himself. The whole thing glorifies Trajan and his great victory. Perhaps you can see a parallel. There's something to upholding and telling the story of Christ and his great victory. But I get ahead of myself. This idea of a, of a proclamational pillar, it was to give life to. It was to animate their heroics and thus the hero, even after his death. 
Augustus, Caesar Augustus, commanded that there would be bronze pillars placed around his tomb that would be engraved with his stories and his exploits because they believed that any time the exploits of the great hero were remembered, then he again or she again would be animated, would come to life in the remembrance of these stories. That's how they would. In fact, there are a lot of animistic religions also that believe that the ancestors, the ancestral spirits, will cease to exist when they are no longer remembered. That's why they are very insistent that their relatives, their descendants, keep remembering them. Their eternal life, their their continuing life after death is dependent upon the memories of their exploits by others. And that played out in Rome as well. There's a lot of things spiritual in the world that are manifest in various different places in similar ways. But I digress. The, the proclamational pillar that, 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 that Trajan has here, it's marked by his story. If you follow that frieze around, the engravings, the spiral engravings around the column, you will see different battle scenes and victories and surrenders and, and the, the um, plunder that was taken and different locations for battles. All of this is told in the pictures that make up the story, the spirals up the column. As you get to the top of the column, the the, um, engravings are actually taller so that they look about the same height if you're looking at them from the ground. It's very well done. But the Catholic Church comes along in the medieval period and they knock off old Trajan from his column and they put a statue of Peter there instead. So the statue you see today is not of Trajan, it's of Peter. Has been for hundreds of years, but you know what? Nobody calls it Peter's column. You know why? Because Peter had nothing to do with the Dacian Wars. Peter had nothing to do with those victories. The column continues to tell the story of the one whom it was engraved to proclaim. So it remains as Trajan's column. Now, why do I say all that? I I describe all that, and well, I guess it's interesting to me. But I describe all that to you because this, this idea of a proclamational, a making it known, a telling the story pillar is one of the essential identities of a local church. We are to proclaim, we are to make known the story of God's truth. Now, in the first century, in Galatians 2.9, James and Peter and John are referred to by, by Paul as pillars in the church. Now, does that mean they're the ones that hold up the church? Often it's read that way, but I don't think so. One of the church fathers, Clement, Clement of Alexandria, described faithful followers of Jesus this way. He said, they are inscribed pillars set as an example of godly virtue to all who possess the power of seeing. Their lives being changed, transformed by God, are to be seen as examples for others to follow. I think that's what Paul was saying about James and Peter and John in the church as well. They were leaders worthy of following, but so also was Paul. This idea of of Christians and a church together being marked by the message that they are given to proclaim. Paul gives us another example of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3. 
He's talking about other, other speakers that are known and they carried with them letters of reference. But Paul says, we don't need letters of reference. Because he says in verse 3, you are our letters, for you are letters of Christ, written by the Spirit of the living God. That you are letters. Have you heard it said, based on that verse, probably you've heard it said at time, that you might be the only gospel that some will ever read. But I hope that's not true. I do hope that you will be the first representation of the gospel that some will ever read. But it doesn't stop there. Rather, it goes on from there of pointing from the way that God's truth, God's gospel has changed your life, that that would point them to the same gospel that will change their life. But we best proclaim the message God has given us to proclaim. He has made us together to be ambassadors for Christ. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation, the gospel. And we best proclaim the gospel when we ourselves have been marked by its message. That's the point of Trajan's column I don't want you to miss. It's still Trajan's column, not Peter, because it's Trajan's story, it tells, it's Trajan's story that has marked and changed and transformed that column as compared to all the other architectural, plain Jane, all look alike columns that are out there. This one has been changed by the message it proclaims. And so should it be in a local church that we will best proclaim the gospel to the people around us when we ourselves have been marked by that message. Now, the church is to be a pillar and a support of the truth. Let's look at that second word. It's translated support, foundation, buttress, ground, as in the ground foundation here. Being well-grounded is a term perhaps you, you might think of. The problem is this word is not used. One of the reasons it's translated so many different ways is the word is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, the word is not found in any other Greek manuscript or writing classical Greek prior to the New Testament or in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Nowhere in ancient Greek until after 1 Timothy does this word show up. You know what I think? Between you and me, Paul made it up. He made it up. It's a new word. And it's not the only new word that, that shows up in Scripture. But this, this, this one's unique. It's a brand new word that he uses to describe an essence of the church. But what he does is he takes an adjective that he's used several times. An adjective that is commonly used in Greek writings and in the Old Testament version of the, uh, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. In, um, um, in, the, in the other New Testament writings, this adjective comes up Repeatedly, it means to be steadfast, to be immovable, to be solid, unchanging, reliable, faithful. And so, here, if we thought about it in terms of, a, of the adjective, you would say that we are to be a reliable, faithful, unmoving pillar. But Paul didn't use the adjective. He went instead, he creates a new noun version of the adjective because he wants to take those qualities. He said, this is what the church is to be. 
a thing, we are to be an immovable, unchanging support of the truth. So you take that idea where Paul tells the Corinthians, for instance, to be steadfast, unmoving, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Those are, that's the adjective form, unmoving, continuing in the work of the Lord in the gospel. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, he uses the adjective again to talk about continuing steadfast, unmoving, not wandering away from the faith that had been delivered to them. And so he takes that adjective idea and he converts that into a noun, a thing we are to be. We are to be an unmoving, faithful, unchanging, think of it immovable in a positive way, a solid and steady and reliable support upon which the proclamation of the truth that changes lives stands. That's why, again, I like Trajan's column. And I outlined it for you. You have a large base upon which it stands, an immovable, an immovable base, which in terms of location in a, in a basilica, in a public place, if you didn't want your proclamational pillar to at some point or another wind up in the back storage room, you would mount it and, and firmly connect it to a very large immovable marble base. And then your pillar is going to continue there after you're gone. That's the idea, that immovable base that provides a support foundation upon which the pillar and its testimony stands. But all that is not for the testimony. We are to be a pillar of the truth, a proclamation of the truth. We are to be a support of the truth. Here's what I mean. We are to be a, the church is to be a support, not the support, not the foundation, but we are to be a support of the truth. And a church can stop doing that. A church can no longer be faithful to supporting the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word. And they can shift and change and they can wander this way, they can wander that way. You've experienced that perhaps in churches. Maybe we've, we, we've seen that recently in some Christian colleges around us. There's a couple of Christian schools recently that, that have lost, first they lost their way and then they lost their being. They lost their identity, they lost their existence. Schools close after efforts to be a little closer, a little more acceptable, a little more relevant to the culture around them. And the problem with that is the culture around them is ungodly. Now, I don't mean that ungodly or godless in a negative, prejudicial sense. I just mean that the culture around them is people without God in the world, as we once were before he called us out to the true and the living God. And so when you try to adjust and be a little closer and be a little more acceptable, the danger is that you may depart from the truth in order to do that. And we've seen that happen. There's a need to balance that, that desire to, to draw others in and be close or relevant to them versus the animosity of non-Christians without compromising the truth. There's a tension out there between the truth, God's absolute truth, and the idea around us that, well, I have my truth, you have your truth, they have their truth, everybody has their own truth. 
And it seems like in the last 20 years, that's gone crazy, and that's a new thing that we still are trying to find our way in. How do we relate absolute truth to my truth, your truth, their truth? But the reality is that's been with us from the beginning. Well, almost from the beginning. The beginning was Genesis 1 and 2. That came along in chapter 3. All the way back then, humanity decided, well, God's truth is this, but we're going to do this. We're going to decide for ourselves what's good and evil. And we, we live in the mess of that ever since. But that idea of God's truth or my truth, the tension between them has existed almost from the beginning. So don't be caught off by that. Culture's truth over time changes. We've seen that in the last 20, 30, 40 years, whatever your frame of reference is. You've seen what's true, what's celebrated, and what's not, and what's forbidden. You've seen that change in culture around you, sometimes very rapidly. God's truth remains true. It is not, ours, it is not for us to adapt it to fit the current circumstances. It is for us to know what God's truth is and to apply that into our current setting. And that will likely make us different. That will likely mark us. It'll cause us to stand out. You don't look like all the other columns around. You've been engraved and changed in a different way. That's exactly what should be because we've got a story to tell. And we'll tell that story as we remain true to God's truth and as we have been thus changed by it rather than changing it to us, which would be the alternative. Beware of a temptation. If I could just say it this way, beware of a temptation to adjust your beliefs to be more acceptable to ungodly culture, which actually is antagonistic to God. Now I said adjusting your beliefs, but perhaps I should even be more clear, departing from the truth of God's word. Now one of the things I'm not saying here is I'm not saying adjusting from your traditions. That we have our own take of things that we are comfortable with, things that we are settled in, the ways that we believe things ought to be. And that's not at all what I'm talking about but that we will measure what we accept and don't accept, what we will do or not do, or we will join in and participate, or where we'll draw the lines. We'll determine those things based on what God has said, not what feels appropriate or what the current culture goes with. For a local church to continue as God's unique people, a different people because God is unique and holy and different and other, to do that in a high-conformance culture where you need to be like us and agree with us and celebrate the things that we celebrate, affirm the things that we affirm. In a high-conformance culture, we need to be founded on, we need to stand on, we need to be clear on God's truth. Someone has said, to make a stand, we need to know three things. We need to know our biblical faith, our current times, and the difference between the two. It requires not only knowledge of truth, but a willingness to defend it at all costs, regardless of how the culture or the church itself may receive it. We need to be willing to preserve, as well as proclaim, God's truth. It is given to each generation of the church to 
uphold, to hold fast to, to guard as a deposit entrusted to us, and to pass it on to others, as Paul tells Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2.2. These things commit, teach to faithful men who will then teach others also. Now back to Trajan's column. There's an immovable base, so even the bottom is visible to all. It lifts up the proclamation so that everybody can see it. That proclamation that was was marked by the story. The church is to lift up God's truth so that others can see it, but the the church also is to be an immovable support, unchanging from that truth. Ancient words, ever true. Changing me, changing you. And as we are changed by that truth, we effectively proclaim it, display it to others. In context now, in the broader context of First and Second Timothy, Paul comes first to Ephesus himself, and he spends significant time there, about three years, to proclaim the gospel. He warned them that there were, there were those who would move on from the truth of the gospel. He warns them in Acts chapter 20. In, in 1 Timothy 4.1, he points out to Timothy that some have wandered from the faith, that others have wandered in chapter 6 and verse 10, but Timothy must guard what has been entrusted to him. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to guard the faith in chapter 1, to pass it on to others, chapter 2, and to do the work of an evangelist of proclaiming in chapter 4. Paul's letters to Timothy are to strengthen this whole essential of upholding and proclaiming God's truth. To proclaim and to preserve. Paul's letters do the same thing. They enable the churches to be a pillar in support as he writes to one church after another. Sometimes it's more about the support. Sometimes it's about the unchanging truth. Sometimes it's correcting doctrinal issues like in 1 Corinthians, like in Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians or Galatians. Important matters of God's truth that need to be defended and held to that are being wandered from. Other times, it's a matter of how the truth changes us. And he's encouraging the church in light of what God has done, in light of God's truth, how that changes our life. And much more of those letters is applicational in nature. You see that, for instance, in in the second half of Ephesians. You see that in Philippians. The book of Romans is a great example of both. Clear on truth and defending the gospel, not ashamed of the gospel. And then from chapter 12 forward, how, what the implications of, of that are, how that gospel changes us. Now as a church, we're told to, to, that we might know how to conduct oneself in the family of God, the called out assembly of the true and living God, and how one ought to conduct themselves as a pillar and support of the truth. Now, a pillar in support of the truth, that's the church. We, as a whole, are to proclaim the gospel. We, as a whole, as a local church, are to defend, to uphold, to preserve the gospel. Sometimes we get to thinking, don't we, that the, the, the responsibility of protecting the gospel, of guarding the truth belongs to colleges and seminaries and scholars and doctors someone somewhere. 
That's not true. This is a responsibility that God has given to a local church. Schools are intended to serve the local church in equipping leaders who will serve within churches in all kinds of ways and will serve within the culture proclaiming that gospel. But local churches are to be the guardians of God's truth. It's given to us together. It's given to us to be the ones to proclaim. It's not the job of evangelism organizations out there, but it's us as a church together. And yet there's an individual, how one conducts himself, there's an individual responsibility that meets the whole. Okay? So, what does that look like for a church together to be a pillar proclaiming by showing and telling, by being changed as a people together and individually? What does that look like? Well, are we an accepting and receiving and welcoming committee that, or, or not committee, a, a congregation, that when, when somebody comes in and you meet somebody, you welcome them, they, they feel genuine warmth from you, that you listen to them, you get to know something about them rather than just, hi, it's good to meet you, my name is, how are you today? You're fine, great, wonderful, and off you go. But do they feel heard? Does that person feel known by you and interest from you? Because God is interested in them, is he not? God has brought them into our midst. And so we would care for them as one that God has sent to us to care for. Do we express that in loving others? Some of the ways like meal trains, praying for, encouraging, that Ryan also talked about in terms of a family. Is that a way that this group of people who are individually, initially, and naturally very selfish, aren't you? Go ahead, you can admit that. Nobody will know. We're in a big safe group here. But we are individually, naturally, initially self-oriented. And yet... God calls us together to be others-oriented. And that's practiced out in family, even as it's learned in your own families. And as we turn from consuming for self, coming to church to see what I get out of it, to coming and gathering together for the sake of what can I give to others. How will I encourage? How will I minister? How will I serve this morning? This would be a great time to point back to the serving opportunities in the bulletin, wouldn't it? Those are there. I'll leave that to your attention later. Do we forbear with one another's differences as a congregation? Do we forbear with or do we jump all over one another in terms of music or politics? Or here we are in Washington and some people support the San Francisco 49ers. I cannot understand that. That really doesn't matter, does it? It really doesn't. There are much more important things as we forbear with differences and care for one another. Are we bringing God's word, God's truth into the midst of our connections as family together? So that, or, or are we just nice? Are we just nice to one another? Or are we actually building up one another? Which sometimes actually is taking a chisel and a hammer and knocking off another little piece, a little more of God's engraving, a little more of God's changing that transforms us more and more into the image of Christ by the Spirit of God. As a church together, what does it look like to be a support, preserving, immovably upholding, unchangingly guarding God's truth? In worship, 
Together we are word-centered. Did you notice how the songs fit with the word? The things that we're going to be talking about from the word are the things that we sung about as well. That they support one another. We teach our hearts and spirits in song even before we open up the scriptures together. In discipleship groups, you're going to read key chapters through the Bible five days a week. You're going to memorize Scripture. You're going to learn to hear from God from His Word as you're journaling together. All of this is, you cannot guard and preserve truth you do not know. The BP Academy classes focus on knowing truth and ministry skills, how to share it, how to engage others. Are you willing to take the time? Or, yeah, I've been in church a while. I, I probably know that stuff. Yeah. But if I wasn't here, I'd be in that Hebrews class. I'd be in that minor prophets class. Because you cannot, you cannot have heard the book of Hebrews too many times, I don't think. A commentary on the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. It's important for a local church like ours to preserve, to support God's truth. But the question goes from corporate, congregational, to individual, doesn't it? What are you doing yourself, individually, as part of our whole? What do you do in contributing to the church-together role of preserving, upholding, supporting the truth? of the gospel. Every one of us has a role in that. To know it, to guard it, to pass it on to the next generation. You know, in the, in the um, third century, just the end of the third century, just before the Emperor Constantine, just before the whole world became Christian, sort of. But just before that, the New Testament was almost wiped out. Prior to, prior to Constantine, the emperors who shared the rule prior to him, there was a concerted effort through persecutions to single out particularly those who were the readers to the congregation of scriptures and to confiscate and to destroy the copies of scripture throughout the Roman Empire. And they were very successful at it. The large majority of the various copies that were scattered far and wide were captured and destroyed at that time. That's why we have so, so few relatively manuscripts from earlier than 300 A.D. as compared to the numbers that we have later. But God preserved his truth. But my point in sharing that story is every generation has a responsibility. That includes our generation that includes this church today. It includes you. And I want to urge you as strongly as I can. I spent a lot of time in God's Word. I love it. I like soaking in it. I like learning. The danger for me is I like learning something new about it. But is it changing me? But for all of us, I, I want to urge you to take another step further into your confidence in God's word, knowing it, wrestling with it, letting it wrestle with you so that you can guard, preserve, and pass it on to the next generation, to others around us. Let's pray. Father, we do live in a time
when there are a lot of pressures for us to change and adjust and adapt from what your word clearly says to turn a different direction, to be more accommodating, to be more flexible. Lord, would we be the ones who are rather flexible to your truth, that we would yield ourselves to it, that it would indeed be changing us, that this gospel which has given us eternal life would indeed be the gospel on which we stand, but not only. It would be the gospel that we trust and which changes us. And thus, as it changes us, Lord, you effectively use us to share it, to tell it, to make it known to people around us. Lord, and we're faithful in making it known because we've been careful ourselves to guard for ourselves as well as others what the truth of your word actually is. So Lord, in a large room full of many people from all kinds of places, Lord, hide your word in our hearts. Give us a love for it. And Lord, give us a love to share it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.